So the first night um, I talked about, or I introduced the theme, uh, practice instruction that it's already here. And just to notice our reaction, the mind's response to that practice instruction. What does the mind do with that suggestion or that instruction? And then talked about balance and the, you know, to do this work of opening, it's not enough to intend to open or to think opening is a good idea, mindfulness is a good idea. We have to understand the dynamic of the honed and heavy axe, that sharpness of wisdom and the stability, the steadiness of concentration or love the willingness to connect and sustain, the willingness to be connected, to include. It's even this love, this stability, even has the flavor of commitment. Like we're really committed to the object, really committed to what's going on, not backing away, not in a hurry, not afraid to submit, not afraid to be touched. So that was the first night. And then the second night, was that last night? (coughs) Thursday, Friday, yeah, I guess it was last night. Um, I talked about like with that balance, when we do have balance, what do we see? And I talked about the two moves of the mind, constriction, and then the absence of that constriction is the release into non-constriction, non-clinging. And I talked about, uh, from Ajahn Sushito, these three things that are relevant to the experience of suffering and non-suffering, which is being interested in our aims, what are we aspiring to, what is the goal of the mind? Not what do we think the goal should be, but what actually is the goal. We've had some interesting conversations in the small groups today about that. Like to be really honest about sometimes our goal isn't very noble at all. It's just to get to my bed without embarrassing myself. Or, you know, yeah, just not to make a fool out of ourselves sometimes is the ultimate goal in our mind at some point in the day. So to look at our aim, our goal, our aspiration, to look at cause and effect, like how, who or what we are is so much coming out of the triggers, the different experiences. Something happens and we're this way. Something else happens and we're another way. Just to be looking at cause and effect, how external and internal arisings affect us, affect our experience. And then the third thing to be interested in, what means do we pick up? You know, we get on our high horse into practice. What do we do? What is the means, the, the practice that we take up? And just have a good look at that with this balanced mind. So with balance, we're looking at our aim, our aspiration. We're looking at cause and effect, how what we call this life is thrown around by 
by causes, by different arisings. It's not personal because what's manifesting in our minds and our bodies is simply coming out of this ocean of cause and effect and to be interested in how we practice or what we do, the means, what we take up, the strategies. But tonight I want to talk more about the way the Buddha, sort of the paradigm the Buddha offered us to drop everything and to be interested in suffering and the end of suffering, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. So I want to talk about that and I'd like to begin again with a a different poem by Mary Oliver called Sleeping in the Forest. Sleeping in the Forest. And I like this uh, partly because we're somewhat in the woods here, but uh, just this dance we do with dukkha, with difficulty, both the obvious difficulty of having body pain, for example, but even when things are going pretty well and the body doesn't hurt too much, even the pain of you know, just a background dis-ease in the mind, in the heart, or a restlessness, a feeling that you know, things aren't complete, this isn't enough. So I think in, in her own way, Mary Oliver talks about this dance with dukkha and about submitting to dukkha. And it's a little bit like drowning because all of our conventional instincts are, as you know, about controlling, fixing, getting some safety. It's not really about turning towards dukkha, which of course, as you know, is what the Buddha teaches to be interested in dukkha. So again, this is her poem, Sleeping in the Forest. I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly, arranging her dark skirts, her pockets full of lichen and seeds. I slept as never before, a stone on a river on the riverbed. Nothing between me and the white fire of the stars, but my thoughts. And they floated light as moths among the branches of the perfect trees. All night I heard the small kingdoms breathing around me, the insects and the birds who do their work in the darkness. All night I rose and fall as if in water grappling with a luminous doom. By morning I had vanished at least a dozen times into something better. You know, the Buddha, like Mother Earth, you know, seduces us. His teachings seem so reasonable. You know, it makes so much sense. A path of opening, a path of being mindful, it just makes so much sense. You know, being rational human beings, we approach the practice, you know, and the Buddha gathers us up tenderly, arranging her dark skirts and pockets, you know, that natural setting 
like a coming home. And, uh, but we, you know, what, when we realize what we've gotten into, it's, in a way, it's too late. We're already <laughs> drowning. But I like this, this description of this process. All night I rose and fall as if in water, grappling with a luminous doom. Right? We're approaching something our instincts say to run from. But there's something illuminating about approaching it. It feels right in our bones to approach it. I had vanished at least a dozen times into something better. I always start my intro class, uh, when I get around to it at least. Uh, I try to talk a little bit about some of the models in Buddhism in the intro class, but mostly it's just about the practice. And one of the models I introduce is the Four four Noble Truths. And I do it in this way, like I'm going to do tonight, which is to see that there are really just two paradigms. We have our usual paradigm, which is I'm a human being living in this world, and I'm using my intellectual and physical abilities to get safety, to get what feels makes me feel safe, makes me feel full, you know, safe in a physical and psychological way. So in a sense, there's this inevitable struggle to figure out what to get, what's not important, what's in the way of safety, what supports safety. And there's really no argument about this. There's an argument about what you think leads to safety and what I think leads to safety. Somebody maybe in the room thinks acquiring great wealth leads to safety. Another person might think having really a good network of friends leads to safety. Another person, health, you know. They're really into Pilates and eating the green shakes now. I was at the co-op Wednesday, I guess, and the person, you know, how they have somebody selling something, and they were selling this new green shake that has all of the fruit and vegetables and a powder that you could ever want. And you just mix it up with water, and you don't have to worry about anything. (laughs) It's so seductive. (laughs) So, just to reflect for a few moments about, you know, yeah, we really get this conventional view Even our approach to the Dharma is this conventional view of, I need something, the Dharma will protect me. Or any religious, spiritual tradition that we've gravitated to over the years in different ways, mostly is coming from this conventional view. Because it's, you know, a lot of the other things haven't really lived up. We haven't really given up acquiring power and wealth and friendship, but... We have our doubts, so we're hedging our bets by <laughs> cultivating religious and spiritual practices and talking to psychics and, you know, basically, we'll try anything. I mean, if, if this whole explosion into the New Age movement has taught us anything, is we will try anything, which is, there's some intelligence in that, right? It's the intelligence that we have some sneaking suspicion that what we're doing isn't really going to do it for us. 
so we're willing to try other things. So it's not all bad, this spiritual marketplace. And if we're lucky, we'll be gathered in by the earth, by the Buddha, by somebody who knows what they're talking about, and we'll be seduced as an ego being wanting safety, will be seduced by how rational the teachings are, how much they make sense. You know, they just, yeah, it feels right. And we're drawn in, and then it's too late. Because we, you know, we get taught, it's like being infected by a computer virus, we get taught the Dharma. And uh, the Dharma is not the conventional view. So again, the conventional view is, I'm bringing all my physical and mental skills to bear on getting what makes me safe and getting rid of what makes me feel unsafe. That's what animals do. Human beings are just, you know, more complicated, sophisticated animal. But that's what animals do. And it's pretty impressive when you look at how animals bring their physical and mental skills to bear on survival... It's really impressive what they could do. Maybe you read about the mountain lion that they took the genetic code from this mountain lion they found on the East Coast, I think in New York State, I forget exactly where, and they traced it to the mountain lions from South Dakota that somehow over a number of years probably it had wandered you know, looking for a mate. There are not too many mountain lions between (laughs) South Dakota, I guess, and the Adirondacks. So it just kept moving. You know, I mean, that's amazing, just that instinct to mate and reproduce. And just just so many stories about what us animals do to be safe. Sort of, yeah, carry on. So I'll talk in a moment about you know, the limitations of that conventional view, but just to briefly introduce the other view, which is not a, not a, an approach, a paradigm of attainment, attaining safety. It's really an abandonment. This is that doom part of the luminous doom, you know. We're giving up the desire for safety. It's not that we don't desire safety. We do desire safety, but we, we've, uh, been infected with the, the intu- intuition that wanting to be safe isn't the cause for safety to arise. Striving to be safe isn't the cause for safety to arise. But that's, of course, a big corner to turn, you know, from all that momentum, genetic momentum, cultural momentum, family momentum, all that momentum of wanting, personally wanting to attain safety, wanting to have it in my hands, locked down, nailed down, dependable. Joseph Goldstein really got me early. I, probably my, one of my first long retreats with them. And he told that story. Most of you have heard me say it and probably have read one of his books where he says this about somebody throwing you out of an airplane and you're in that free fall. And this is sort of a metaphor for human life. You know, We're in this free fall of having a life. Things are happening. You know, 
and we want safety. And, uh, you know, it's not so easy to acquire safety when you're in a free fall. So mostly what we do is flail around and complain, you know, or curse or whatever, blame somebody. (laughs) But it doesn't, it's just not effective in a free fall. There's really nothing you can do. There's nothing to grab a hold of. And the dharmic perspective is to get interested in the free fall. Is it actually a problem? What's the problem of a free fall? Well, the thought that we're going to hit something. You know, the thought that it's dangerous. But maybe not. Maybe there isn't ground to hit. And that's sort of the experience, this turning from paradigm one to paradigm two. It's really, it is a tremendous turning. And that's why generally we tend to play around the edges for a long time. You know, we read, we study, we listen to talks, we dabble. But then, you know, if we're fortunate, we, we open to experience that uh, it's basically an insight that uh, there's safety in understanding that the free fall is just a free fall. It isn't a problem for anybody. Like there's safety in radically trusting the way that it is, opening and trusting the way that it is. So I'll talk a little bit about the conventional view because one of the things that helps us make this turn once we're hearing the Dharma, hearing these teachings, this Buddha pointing out this other paradigm, one of the things that really helps us is to understand the absurdity how the conventional view just doesn't work. You know, we have to see that over and over again. And all of us, to some degree, have some momentum in seeing that the conventional view doesn't work very well. The Buddha says, Inflamed by lust, incensed by hate, confused by delusion, our minds obsessed, we choose for our own affliction, for others' affliction, and for the affliction of both, and experience pain and grief. So, you know, in short, the Buddha is saying that when we have the conventional view, conventional paradigm, trying to attain safety, then we have just a few means to be greedy, to want safety, to be afraid of not having safety, and to feel a little overwhelmed by it and want to disconnect, you know, just want a break from needing safety, be distracted. Like when, you know, a cat, you know, Basically, you've seen some of the cats moving around, and there's just something when you watch a cat move, there's just something that's really powerful and attuned. But cats can get distracted, you know, 
they can sort of get interested in things that probably not going to lead to a meal or safety. You can just see that. Like wanting to be held by human beings. <laughs> or maybe they want milk. Who knows? So there are these, the Buddha in this quote is mentioning the three poisons. Sometimes it's translated as, you know, greed, aversion, and delusion. So these are what characterize the conventional view, the sort of animal paradigm. Greed, aversion, and delusion. And it's easy for us to be judgmental, but it's not meant in any way to be a judgment. It's just... just uh, uh, an encouragement to look and see that even when we're like we were talking I was talking about this morning or whenever that was about the fish jumping out of the lake you know that can cause our heart to be to have a thrill like just to see nature being nature but really it's just greed you know on, on some sort of physical mental level the fish is hungry enough to jump out of the water to try to catch an insect, hoping to catch it, doing its best to catch the bug. Or, you know, you get too close to certain cats, kittens, and they, you know, they snarl at you or defend themselves if you pet them too hard or scare them in some way. You know, so this responsive aversion... And getting distracted. You know, all of us animals do that as well. One of my favorite quotes on uh, delusion, uh, I'm sorry, uh, greed, is this uh, wonderful poem by Basho. Even in Kyoto, I long for Kyoto when I, when I hear the cuckoo sing. And we've had people share that. I shared it a while back. Somebody else, maybe it was Mira, shared it in one of the small groups. Just noticing how here we are at a beautiful place and we want to be in a beautiful place. Was it you who shared that? Yeah. And this is like really common. This is what greed is. Instead of sort of contentedness with what it is, what we have, we're always imagining what we could have that would be better. As nice as Holy Spirit is, so many of us, myself included, have had many ideas of how it could be better. (laughs) All of those ideas are stressful. You know, it's not stressful to have the idea, but it's stressful to be identified that that would be better for me or for us. You know, any identification with it. Whatever, you know, all the little ways, all the big ways that we've done that. And then aversion. This is a quote from Ayakema, a wonderful German nun who's passed away now, but has a number of uh, good books, Buddhist nun. She said, fear is a characteristic, and fear is just a form of aversion. Fear is a characteristic that can be traced back to our desire to retain an essentially fixed and separate nature as individuals and for life to be pleasant all the time. So this is that fixation on safety, 
a life about safety, attaining safety, creates, you can't have that paradigm without fear of not getting the safety. You can't, we can't desire safety without being afraid we're not going to get it. And of course, we wouldn't be content with any safety that didn't give the ego everything it wanted, which is, of course, impossible, because the ego, in part, is this imagination that knows no bounds. So, you know, um, sometimes people in their meditations, some people I know, it's not as uncommon as you might imagine, uh, you know, who knows what they're actually tuning into, but they have visions of celestial realms and uh, or experiences of celestial realms. Elegant staircases, beautiful palaces, sensual delights. Uh, I've even had uh, experiences of, of amazing music, like otherworldly sounds that were just so enchanting, just in one of my meditative experiences. So it's not, it's not that uncommon. And, you know, you can even imagine, see, once you have one, you can, like, want it to last longer. Or there's, So there's really no end. And some of you, whatever field you're really interested in, whether it's music or cooking implements or, you know, where's the end of that refinement? Where does it end? Or gardening implements, right? It's like there's so many things. Or my roommate for three years in college, who's now the number two lawyer at Microsoft, a very successful business person, and uh, he, I, I ran into him not that long ago, and uh, he's, uh, he collects French furniture from a particular century. I forget which one. <laughs> You know, like three, four hundred years ago. Um, you know, that's what he does. <laughs> and, you know, he studies it. And, you know, it's like it is amazing what, what we do, you know, for greed. And then aversion, like uh, we won't get that peace. And then just all of this, all of this aversion and all of this greed is delusion. This is the third, right? So there's these three poisons or three main defilements, three ways that the conventional paradigm, what the Buddha calls ignorance or worldliness, the three sort of main forces in our animal life, human life, would be greed, aversion, and delusion. And so delusion is thinking that aversion and greed get us somewhere somewhere besides suffering and tension. That's delusion or ignorance. And uh, Rumi has a great line. This Persian poet says, How long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones? Let the world go. Holding it, we never know ourselves, never are airborne. How long will we fill our pockets like children with dirt and stones. You know how it is. You walk, take a walk with a three-year-old. They think grass is fascinating, or a pebble, or you know, a piece of bark, or as if it's a you know a prized possession, or whatever you know they might pick up. 
and we're a little bit like that with our French furniture or our, you know, whatever. We even collect meditative experiences or retreats, you know. Like when you apply for retreats at places like IMS, uh, I guess maybe we do that too in our registration now. Where I don't know if we actually ask you to report the retreats you've been on, but in uh, at IMS, especially if you're doing a longer retreat, they want the dates, the teachers, you know, how long it was, and the kind of practice you did at that retreat. You know, and it's like for a while <laughs> in the earlier years, it was sort of a badge of, you know, a pride, like to look at that list, you know. And now it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> but it took a long time <laughs> to, to sort of go from like something I, there was some secret pride about, like I've done all these retreats. I have all this experience or whatever way, like um, I haven't had to do a resume for a long time, but back in the day when I had to write a resume, you know, it was like, uh, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> or somebody asks you about your background, you know, and you're all prepared to, You've rehearsed. And you know, just how to tell the story of your life in a way that's interesting and not too boastful, but gets the point across that you're an amazing human being. And, <laughs> or you're, you know, some of us, it would be just the opposite. We want to convince them that we're not an amazing human being, which is its own kind of pride. So these are just the ways that we collect, you know, as if that collection of whatever it is that we collect, that we grasp onto, is going to protect us or be anything more than stones and rocks, dirt. And Buddha has such a provocative image. You know, he asks the questions, question to his students, you know, what's, what's greater, the water in the four great oceans or the tears that we have shed through traversing lifetime after lifetime with this conventional view? trying to attain safety? And of course, you know the answer. (laughs) We've shed more tears than there is water in the four great oceans. That's a lot of crying. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho talking about the Four Noble Truths, the First Noble Truth, which is, if you don't remember, again, this was the Buddha's first teaching, first Dharma talk. He introduced the middle way. Basically, the middle way means it's not about this conventional view of seeking safety, and it's not about thinking you can get safe by giving up on seeking safety like giving up on it. Neither of those would get you anywhere. Here's the way. And then he, so he taught the Four Noble Truths was the second paradigm. And the first statement is, there is suffering in life. And this suffering should be understood. And here's Arjun Sumedho's reflection on that. He says, There's no one who hasn't recognized some kind of disappointment, dis-ease, discontentment, doubt, fear, or despair at some 
time in their life. The first noble truth means that these things are always incomplete or imperfect, that things are always incomplete or imperfect, even when you get everything you want. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean that your mother doesn't love you and everybody hates you and you're poor and misunderstood and exploited. You can be loved by everybody, have wonderful parents, be blessed with beauty, wealth, and all the opportunities that any human being could possibly experience in life, and still you will be discontented. Still you will have this feeling that something is incomplete, something is not yet finished, something is unsatisfactory, as long as we're in this conventional view. And then a little later in the section he says, I've heard some people say that they've never suffered. It amazes me that someone can actually say that. For me, there's always been tremendous and a, a tremendous amount of suffering in life. It's not because my of any great misfortune. I'm a very fortunate being. I've had good parents very and very good opportunities for everything. I haven't been badly treated or abused. The suffering comes from just being alive. This is dukkha. Dukkha is existential anguish. It's the anguish of simply being a human being. There's a kind of anguish connected to it, even when, you're go- even when you've got everything and life is beautiful. And that's just inherent in the conventional view. It's not inherent in life, so to speak. It's inherent in the view that life is about attaining safety. And one more thing from the Buddha, talking about this. Now, this is from the Satipatthana Sutta, where he's talking about um, how to understand your mind. And now, what is the noble truth of dukkha, of stress or suffering? Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful, association with the unbeloved is stressful, separation from the loved is stressful, not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful clinging to the mind and body. Clinging to the mind and body means assuming that the purpose of the mind and body is to deliver safety. So all our mental and physical experiences are about somehow attaining safety. As long as that is our view, then we have what the Buddha would call clinging or grasping, and we suffer. There's stress. Going back to that image of the free fall, you know, and flailing about, not wanting to be falling. One person that Joseph Goldstein used to quote a lot, Wooly Woo, forget his name, something like that. He has this image of a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. You know, and uh, sometimes it's like that if you have dogs, especially older dogs, where they think something's afoot. You know, it might be that you just did something, but the dog is convinced, you know, 
danger or whatever, and it, it throws its own little fit. Barking up a tree that isn't there. And then, of course, it's stressful to be barking up a tree that isn't there, and that's, that's really the heart of samsara, the pain of the wrong view, of seeking or trying to attain safety in a way that it's not possible and not even needed in the way that we imagine it. But it's stressful, and so the stress of it convinces us that we need safety. You see, it feeds back into itself. The stress of wrong view propels wrong view of seeking safety in a personal way, safety from me. So let's uh, take some time now and look at the Buddha's pointing out, the second paradigm, you know, dharma, what we call dharma practice. We talked about this the first night, you know, as a path of understanding and love, the honed and heavy acts, this balance. So instead of seeking to attain safety, we're, in a sense, you know, you could say we're seeking to develop balance, the balance of understanding and love, the balance of wisdom and samadhi. We're interested in uncovering the heart, the mind, that can open to life as it actually is, that, in, that can include everything that can arise. So this is the noble, the, the noble, the four noble truths. This is that other paradigm. It's, in short, you could just say it's a, a path of understanding instead of a path of attainment. Trying to get something for ourselves that will make us safe. We're just interested in understanding, and in particular, understanding dukkha and the end of dukkha. Because remember, the dukkha we're experiencing is the dukkha that arises when we're barking up a tree that isn't there. <coughs> when we're flailing about thinking that a free fall is dangerous. And then the flailing itself is the dukkha that makes us feel that the free fall is dangerous. So we're compelled to flail more, to struggle more, to get safety. So then that makes sense, doesn't it, that what we need is a balanced heart that can see things as they are. And, you know, when people report deeper insights, they always end up, whatever they say, they always end up with some statement about, and it's okay. Everything's okay. (laughs) Right? Like, I guess I don't need to be flailing about. And it doesn't mean that they're no longer seeing that, you know, some people are starving or people are aging and, People are finding out they have cancer and beautiful things are happening and terrible things are happening. But they just understood deeply, resonantly, that flailing about isn't useful or needed. That the dukkha is totally unnecessary. 
It's like that great line from Shanti Deva. You've heard over and over again. The Dalai Lama uses it quite often in his teachings and his books. You know, Dalai, uh, Shanti Deva was this great, I don't know, eighth century Buddhist monk from India. I forget exactly when he lived, but a number hundreds of years ago, and uh, he wrote a treatise on the way of the Bodhisattva. And in that, he has this teaching that if there is something wrong in your life, this is a kind of a gross paraphrase, if there's something wrong in your life, by all means, if there's something you can do about it, do something about it. And if there isn't anything you can do about it, well, then there's nothing you can do about it. But you don't need to flail. You don't need to be upset. You don't need to grasp after safety. So if there, if there is some uh, response, something good we can do in this moment, then let's do it. And if there's nothing good to do in this moment, well, there's nothing good to do in this moment. But we don't need to worry. We don't need to be tight. We don't need to construct dukkha. And we start, we learn this right in the beginning, you know, as we get this instruction from the Buddha, there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. So in that first talk, the Buddha says, as you traverse this path, you will have three insights. Uh, You will have 12 insights. The first three is you will have the insight, there is dukkha. And like uh, Ajahn Sumedho said, that section I read from his book, The Mind and the Way, this dukkha, it doesn't have to do with whether you have good circumstances or bad circumstances. This dukkha is inherent in that conventional view. It just comes with that view of trying to attain safety or trying to escape suffering is another way you could say that. Uh, Larry Rosenberg has a great line. He says, uh, there is an end to suffering, but escaping suffering isn't the end to suffering. That's the cause. Trying to escape suffering is the cause for suffering. The end of suffering is understanding it. Another IMS teacher like Larry Rosenberg says, uh, Larry Rosenberg, who's also an IMS teacher, Sarah Dowring says, to face what is painful is peaceful. It leads to compassion for self and others. So right at the very beginning, we get this instruction from the Buddha you know, to have these three insights. There is dukkha, it's relevant, it should be understood, it has been understood. So any moment of our life when there's something difficult, oh, there's something difficult, it should be understood, it has been understood. So there are three unique insights, that it's there, that it's relevant, meaning it's worthy of turning my whole life toward it, including it, submitting to it, being interested in it, welcoming it, embracing it, and all these words we have, practice instructions we have, until the heart can say with confidence, it's understood. There is nothing left to open to. Anything that there is here to open to has been opened to. Any defenses, any turning away has been abandoned. The heart is completely exposed, undefended, and awake with this reality. 
And then we just noticed, like, even in even those just those first three insights, it's peaceful. You would think logic would tell us it's just the opposite. You know, whatever it is, our fear of aging, getting gray hair, our fear of uh, not being loved by our partners or our friends, not being respected, fear of financial insecurity, it always seems dangerous to turn toward the truth. Ancient pain, ancient abuse, ancient loss, And as if the breaking of the heart, the movement of the heart energy is dangerous instead of enlivening. And the other thing that we can start to touch immediately when we get these instructions, we start intuiting this other paradigm, this this pointing out from the Buddha, is just that sense that this is how it is now, There's something powerful in that, like it's unshakably true. You know, so when we recognize there's difficulty, there's pain, there's suffering, and we turn to it, we like open to that first insight, there is dukkha, this is being known. This fear is being known. Fear is like this now. It's like, you know how we often say when we speak the truth there's power in truth and that's true you know it's like right directly from our experience it's true there is fear being known and it's like this now and that it's like it's a a powerful grounding a confidence confidence in our own experience in our own mind and then because of that confidence more and more independence from all of our dependencies. You know, all of the things we think are going to deliver safety, we start having more and more independence from them. Because we've got this other refuge. This is how it is now. And we know this directly. We know it delivers, you know, I'm not sure what to call it, grounding, stability, you know, an unshakableness. Like, what's going to shake that? What's going to rock that? When, you know, we turn to something going on in our life and we say, this is how it is now. It, it wouldn't matter if Barack Obama showed up and said, no, no, it's not, or, you know, whoever you think you should respect. The Dalai Lama, you know. It wouldn't matter if somebody else said, no, 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 you're off. Because we're seeing it directly. You know, it's like we're independent in that way. Well, this is how it is. This is being known. This experience is being known. It's being seen, being felt, being understood as it actually is arising. You know, so much of our life in that first paradigm where we're trying to get safety is filled with doubt because we've been betrayed literally an infinite number of times thinking that this person... And my relationship with this person is going to make me safe, and it doesn't turn out. Getting home and having a big spaghetti dinner is going to make me feel safe, and then it doesn't. I mean, it might for you know certain bitefuls, 
and then it doesn't anymore. We, we need dessert, or we need to vomit because <laughs> we ate too much, or something. Over and over like that, we've been disappointed. So we have so much doubt. So when we connect with these teachings, and we and doubt literally is eliminated in moments when there's connecting and sustaining that simple act of opening to the way that it is. Doubt is no not there then. And a new kind of confidence arises. It's not a hopeful confidence or confidence because something makes sense or because everybody else is doing it. It's really confidence in our own heart, in our own experience. And that's what I mean when I say it's unshakable. This is, again, Ajahn Sumedho from The Mind and the Way, a different section, different chapter. He's talking about the human mind as a reflective mind. And this is that, that second paradigm is a path of reflection. What we mean by mindfulness is the ability to not attach to any object, either in the material realm or the mental realm. When there is no attachment, the mind is in its pure state of awareness, intelligence, and clarity. That is mindfulness. The mind is pure and receptive, sensitive to the existing conditions, It is no longer a conditioned mind that just reacts to pleasure and pain, praise and blame, happiness and suffering. For example, if you get angry right now, you can follow the anger. You can believe it and go on and on creating that particular emotion, or you can suppress the anger and try to stop it out of fear or aversion. However, instead of doing either, you can reflect on the anger as something observable. Now, if anger were our true self, we wouldn't be able to observe it. That is what I mean by reflection. What is it that can observe and reflect on the feeling of anger? What is it that can watch and investigate that feeling? The heat in the body or the mental state? That which observes and investigates is what we call a reflective mind. The human mind is a reflective mind the one who knows, right? That's often how the word Buddha is translated, the one who knows. So when we're in the free fall, feeling out of control in our life, struggling to attain safety, then if we are encouraged by the Buddha and our teachers to have this reflective mind, flailing is like this, Terror is like this. Wanting is like this. It's like the heart that can know the terror, that can know the flailing, isn't the same as the flailing. And that's, it seems like, as in terms of words, it seems insignificant, but we just have to keep going there and seeing and experiencing the the mind that knows, the heart that knows, the one that knows. 
knows the anger, knows the aversion, knows the fear, knows the neediness, the desiring. So we're taking refuge in that awareness. Not in the anger, not in the flailing. So conceptually it's really important to get that move from being the one who's flailing to being the one who knows the flailing, the fear, the terror. Knowing terror is like this. This is terror being known. Known by what? We don't know. But it's not the terror because the terror is being known. So right in the beginning, you know, just mindfulness itself gives the flavor of freedom. We don't have to wait until all the insights have arisen and you know, there's no more delusion, no more tendency to get caught in the desire for safety. Right in the beginning, just moments of mindfulness have the flavor of that freedom. There's a sense of space when we're mindful. In the same way, there's a sense of entrapment when we're caught, when we're identified, when we're taking things personally. So it's not... It's not rocket science. It's not that hard to see the difference between the two paradigms. We just have to know how to analyze it. Like really see that like when we do take things personally, take advantage to notice how heavy that experience is, how tight it is. And and correlate the taking it personally with the tightness, with the oppressive qualities of the heart in that moment. And when you're more mindful, reflective, knowing that this is being known, knowing that that's being known, taking refuge in the one who knows, taking refuge in mindfulness, then just notice how spacious and resilient and enlivened the heart and mind are. Arjun Sumedho says, Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change, emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. Because if it were a creation, we could look at it. We could observe it. He says, it's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. You can just you know, for the last minute or two, you could even take up a particular experience that's arising now. You know, whatever it is, like, uh, oh God, there's another sit at nine o'clock and my knees are shot, or, you know, whatever, oh, there's a whole other day, or, you know, I'm so glad there's another day. So whatever experience, whether it's a really beautiful, pleasant experience, or challenging experience that you can tune into right now, 
And just experiment with that reflective second paradigm approach. You know, the one who knows that this is being known. This is just something being known. Any frustration is just something being known. Any happiness right now or inspiration, that's just something being known. Any dread, kind of deep in the heart, any dread or pain, it's just something being known. We'll just sit with this for a few minutes. And again, Ajahn Sumero says, stay with that because it's a refuge that is indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and very simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice. It's like this. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.